The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 6, verses 12 through 20. The word of God speaks to us. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's words to us. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. I'd uh, love to get a chance to meet you. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I, I want to say thank you for being here. Uh, you're not just welcomed here. You're, we, we love and, and we enjoy having you here. And if you have any questions about anything that's going on today or anything about the faith uh, or anything about this text, uh, we'd love to talk to you and, um, uh, afterwards. We uh, have been and continue to walk through this book of 1 Corinthians. And what we find is that what Paul is saying to the church at Corinth has way more to do, has way more to say to us in our current moment than many of us may realize. That it speaks quite uh, specifically to our lives, our cultures, our moment. I want you to hear this text not as a word to other people who lived a couple thousand years ago. I want us to hear this as God's word to us. I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask you to pray for me as we step into this text and see what God would say to us. Father, speak. I pray. Where we might want to dodge a text like this or act like somehow that's speaking to somebody else or not about us, I pray that you would speak to us. Holy Spirit of God, would you help us see the beauty of how you've created our bodies and the beauty of how you've created sex and, and what, it, what it means to walk rightly in relationship to this. Would you speak to us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Last year, I read a, a fun little book by the sci-fi author Timothy Zahn called Soul Minder. It's a fascinating little book. In, in, in this book, in this world, they've invented a technology or a, or a device that can capture the human soul when it leaves the body upon death. Now, you can imagine in a sci-fi book what happens to technology like this. Bodies begin to be treated as commodities, and so somebody who wants to live forever will buy somebody else's bodies that's younger than them so that they can be placed from their old body into this new body. And, and people begin to go, well, I like that body better than my body, and, and I'll, I'll steal it. And it, everything goes off the rails, as you can imagine. As soon as we separate the soul from the body, we begin to treat the body as a mere technology. And that's the point of this book. It's a brilliant book. And whether or not Zahn realizes it or not, he's actually hitting on something that's deeply Christian. And that's that 
When we separate the body from the soul, we actually treat it as a tool and an instrument, not as the gift that it is. So why do I start with this? Well, I start with this because while Paul is talking about sexual immorality, his, his under, his, as he unpacks this, he's really telling us about our bodies, about what our bodies are, why they matter, and what to do with them. See, Paul realizes that as soon as we make the move to dismiss our bodies as incidental to ourselves, we actually will lose our humanity. So as he walks us through this text, there's three things that Paul's going to show us. We're just going to walk through this this morning. He's going to show us, or he's going to talk to us about why the body matters. He's going to talk to us about what sex really is. And he's going to wrap up by telling us where redemption is found. Let's get to work. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. You see, whether they were aware of it or not, the Corinthians or these members in the early Corinthian church were beginning to treat the body as an instrument for the satisfaction of desire. You see, these two phrases, all things are lawful for me and food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, these were slogans of their cultural moment. These were slogans that would have been on bumper stickers and coffee mugs and wall art in the Corinthian, in Corinthian homes. These were slogans that had shaped an imagination in the culture that actually the body is nothing but a technology to pursue pleasure. All things are lawful for me. Anything you want to do doesn't impact your soul, just go do it. They'd been sucked into this idea that had permeated that world and permeates ours of dualism. Dualism, this idea that somehow our bodies and our souls can be abstracted from each other, separated from one another, and treated as independent. And as soon as they did that, what they were able to do is they, were con- they convinced themselves that their bodies were, were nothing but bags of desire and tools for chasing those desires. The body was simply a tool to gain pleasure. Doesn't sound like us at all, does it? We in our cultural moment may not, be sol- may not be surrounded by those slogans that the Corinthian church was surrounded by, but we have our own. John Kleinick picks this up in his brilliant book, Wonderfully Made. He says, the slogans on two t-shirts worn by young women recently caught my attention. The first was, my body, my choice. The second was, your body may be a temple, but mine's an amusement park. Both sum up how people commonly now regard their bodies. Since it belongs to them and only to them, they may do as they please with it. Therefore, they use it for their own amusement in pursuit of physical pleasure for themselves apart from God and any higher purpose in life. What are we to make of our bodies? That's not a theoretical question for idle speculation, something for philosophers to consider. No, it's a practical matter that determines the course of our lives. I don't think Kleinig is overstating that point. That if we do not understand what God has given us in our bodies, we, we will not actually understand what it means to even be human in the world. 
Genesis 1 and 2 introduce us to God's creation and the fact that when he creates man and he creates mankind, he gives us bodies not as, a, not as clothes to wear, but as an indispensable part of who we are. That, his, that when he creates the human body, he looks at it and he says, that, that right there is very good. You see, we are more than our bodies, but we're not less than our bodies. Genesis tells us that he breathes life into this human body, this form he's created. And, and he says that, that, that man became a living, living being. See, he placed a soul in the body so that we, as holistic beings, are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. They're inseparable. Genesis also tells us that we are created sexually, that our bodies, our sexual forms, our gendered forms are actually a gift from God that he creates us in. It says male and female, he created them. He created us to complement one another. He created us to fit together. He created male and female not as an accident or an incident or just trying to problem solve something, but as a beautiful gift. And those bodies are meant or, or are formed to come together in sex in a way that we don't see in any other way. You see, the Bible tells us that our bodies, that we are more than just desire and instruments. Our bodies are gifts. It goes on to tell us that Christian faithfulness cannot be abstracted out from our bodily actions. In other words, the way that we live our lives, we don't live as disembodied souls. We live, live as embodied persons. And what we do with our body matters. How we live out faithfully in, before the Lord and between one another matters. It tells us in that text that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. So profound. We cannot separate these things. So why does Paul focus so much on this section about the body when he's talking about sexual immorality? What's the connection? Well, the connection is not just under, that he's trying to give us an understanding of the body, but he's trying to tell us what sex really is, leading us to the second point. Look at verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. That he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. So what's happening here? Well, in Corinth, there, there, we're, we're typically, when we typically think of, of, of temple prostitution, we think of people going to the temple, engaging in prostitution, engaging in sex acts as a worship to their, their God. And this was a, this was a pr predominant thing that would happen in cultures in this day. But in this particular moment, what is happening is they, the, that the people are going to the temples, engaging in worship, and, and having a meal together. And afterwards, after the physical, after, 
appetites or the hungers are met, then they bring out the prostitutes to address the sexual desires of the body. This was a way in which they worshipped Venus and Aphrodite in Corinth. And what Paul says is, it's not just out there, you're doing this. Saying that to the church. You see, members of the church of Corinth were participating in, their, in, in what the culture said that was of value, of, of doing what the culture said you ought to do to worship. They had so disconnected their understanding as a soul purchased by God and separated that off from the body that what the body did didn't matter to them. So they could chase their pleasures, they could chase their desires. And for them, this looked like temple prostitution. But Paul's concern encompasses so much more. You see, what had gone wrong was the Corinthians had completely misunderstood what sex was. They misunderstood, and their misunderstanding of sex led to a misuse of sex. In separating the body from the soul, they treated sex as simply a need or a right. They divorced it from covenantal relationship. And then they gave this super spiritual cover. The grace of God covers it. The grace of God, the gospel of God liberates us and frees us. And so we can use that freedom however we want. Paul says, no. No, you don't get to do this. Kleine continues in his book, Wonderfully Made. He says this. The matter of sex touches us more deeply, pervasively, and personally than any other aspect of our humanity, except perhaps death. Yet it's even harder for us to consider it in an honest, helpful way because of our own sexual failures as men and women, the limitations of language to convey its complexity, and the current terminology that confuses our understanding and discussion of it. There is, I reckon, no other aspect of life in the body that has been disrupted so seriously or corrupted so obviously by our fall into sin. There is no other natural physical gift that has been so evidently misused and commonly abused as this. See, while Paul is addressing what had gone wrong in the Corinthians' understanding of sex, it, it matters to us to stop and go, how have we misunderstood sex? In our cultural moment, how have we misunderstood sex? See, we are in the midst of a, uh, a decades, if not centuries-long sexual revolution in which our understanding of sex as a culture has been radically reformed. Our culture has slowly separated sexual morality from questions of covenantal union. It's separated questions of sexual morality from procreation. It's separated uh, sexual morality from our created, embodied, gendered selves. We've reduced sex as to nothing more, or reduced sexual morality to nothing more than consent. It's not about a positive thing. It's about not getting into trouble. We have begun to see sex as a need a mere biological impulse to be fulfilled. This commodification of sex has led to rampant casual sex, premarital sex. Just sex is whatever you want to do with your body whenever, with, with whomever. Or what we do is we abstract it out and we engage in, in, uh, in, in filling this needs with pornography. 
to disembody sex even further, to abstract it away from real presence and treat it as something that we can engage in, not just with anybody we want to, but just with ourselves. We've destroyed sex as a relational gift. Our culture has separated sex from gender and biology. We live in a world in which we live, live in a world in which we're told anything goes, anything goes, whatever you want. This is similar to what Corinth was told. Whatever you desire, go after it, chase it. And we treat the body as a mere technology for self-gratification or self-expression. We act as if how God made our bodies doesn't matter to our sexuality. And so we improperly approach sex through homosexuality, transgenderism. We subtract it from relationships, we subtract it from our biology, and we we run counter to God's good design. But let me tell you very, very clearly, sex is not a technology. It's not a reward. It's not a product to manipulate. To view sex this way is to see sex as small and cheap, a shell of what God has created it to be. The world's starting to notice. It's been fascinating as I've been reading over the last couple of years is the number of articles and books that are being written by people that are not followers of Jesus that are saying, hey, something's wrong here. What we thought was going to bring freedom isn't. In her brilliant book, End of Sex, Donna Freitas talks about how hookup culture has actually destroyed our, the ability of, uh, she studies as a sociologist, studies uh, young people in college over the course of years, and she says they don't even know how to pursue or understand intimacy anymore. It's destroyed the capacity for deep relationality. That this abstracting sex apart from relationships has meant we've lost both. We've lost meaningful sex, and we've lost intimacy. Recently, um, Christina Imba just wrote a, released a book called Rethinking Sex, a Provocation. And it's great. I wish I had time to kind of unpack her central thesis, but I think it's really summarized by the, the title of chapter two. She says this. This is the chapter title. We're liberated and we're miserable. We're liberated and we're miserable. In other words, what we think will gain us more satisfaction ends up losing what satisfaction could be found. So here's a question. What if sex is more than this vision that our culture has given us? We're going to talk more about this next week as we step into chapter 7. But I want to say very, very clearly, the Bible speaks about the beauty of of sex. God doesn't blush when he says the word. God didn't blush when he wrote Song of Solomon. He rejoiced. You see, so many people think of Christianity as nothing but repressing sexual desire or pushing it down. And what I want to say is, no, 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 the Bible calls us to the only kind of sex that actually is fulfilling. It celebrates it. It tells us that sex is given by God for marriage, a self-giving act of self 
giving covenantal love. It's given for enjoyment inside the safety of covenantal faithfulness, but it's also there to unite. It's unitive. It's meant to, to propagate. It's procreative. And the Bible tells us that marriage doesn't serve sex. Sex serves marriage. This holy institution that God has created for our thriving and for our well-being. He gives sex as a gift. Matthew Lee Anderson says it this way in his book, Earth and Vessels. Gifts are given out of freedom, not necessity. Authentic human sexuality is something more than a physical act done for the purpose of bodily stimulation or pleasure. It's the mutual self-giving of two persons in their external dimensions, inaugurating a union that encompasses the totality of their lives. It's an overflow of love that starts in the heart and shows itself in the very members of our flesh. He continues, our bodies are the place of our personal presence. I love that. Our bodies are the place of our personal presence, which means that our union in sex is very real. Intercourse establishes a union of persons in this visible dimension. Inasmuch as husband and wife live, move, and act towards others, including their children, they do so as one. You see, sex cannot be abstracted away from the body. This place of personal presence, as Anderson says. It can't be abstracted away from the body, nor can it be isolated or confined to the body. You see, what the Corinthians were doing was trying to separate sex from meaning in their life. They were sleeping with prostitutes, thinking it would have no bearing on their lives, their families, their marriages, their bodies. That's what our culture does as well. We treat the body as a mere tool for sexual gratification. Kleinig comes back and says, says this. Paul argues that sexual intercourse does not just satisfy certain basic bodily needs, such as eating and drinking. It's been designed to produce a personal bodily union between a man and a woman in marriage. It's a personal union because the human body is inseparable from a person rather than something existing apart from a person. You cannot take a woman's body without interacting with her as a whole person. You cannot detach her body from her soul. Even though people usually identify themselves with their bodies, they all too often falsely fancy that the physical sexuality of another person exists apart from that person. Yet it's not in our sexuality that we most obviously experience the unity of ourselves as persons with our bodies. You see, sex is not just the act of one body with another body. It's the act of one soul with another soul. The biblical vision for this is beautiful and it's holistic. And our culture's view is a cheap substitute. So what do we do with this? Because if we think that at this moment, like I haven't slept with a prostitute, I'm good, Paul. Then we haven't reckoned with the ways in which we have been affected by a culture that separates body from sex. 
the ways in which our longings and desires go unchecked, the ways in which we pursue pleasure, not actually pursuing a self-giving love towards one another, the way in which we treat others as animals or as tools, not as people created in God's image, and not treat marriage as a sacred, beautiful gift from God. Paul doesn't give up on Corinth. He doesn't say, hey, you're sleeping with prostitutes, we're done, and walk out. He he answers the question, what what do we do with our bodies? He talks about what sex truly is, but he also tells them where redemption is found. Look in verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. You see, if we're going to find redemption, the gospel speaking into this aspect of our lives, we have to reckon, reckon with this truth. None of us in this room are innocent. None of us. Maybe you haven't done something that seems as egregious as what Corinth was engaging in. But we are all sexually broken. We all have viewed others as tools to leverage. We've chased fulfillment through technology. We've longed for things that God has said no to. None of us are innocent. But Paul isn't just concerned here with who they're sleeping with. He's concerned with what they're worshiping. Paul's concerned with how they are worshiping. Notice here, Paul doesn't call their salvation into question. I think I would have if I were to Paul. I think I would have probably written this and go, hey, you guys are sleeping with the prostitutes. I thought you believed in Jesus. I'm not so sure anymore. But what does he say to them? Even these people that are living in grotesque sexual immorality, he calls them members of Christ. They aren't too far gone. He continues in verse 19, or or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? He speaks to them as believers united to Jesus by faith. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. I'm caught here by Paul's words because they... It seems so untrue. And maybe I'm just speaking for me. Maybe, maybe you guys are way, are, are, are way holier than I am. You probably are. But I don't feel like a temple of the Holy One. I feel the brokenness of my sin. I feel the brokenness of my sin in so many areas. Paul's call to them is to call them towards holiness because they are united to the Holy One. 
We don't get to live however we want, chasing our desires and chasing our pleasures because A, that's not where life is found, and B, we're not our own. So he tells them to flee from sexual immorality. Flee, run away, get out of here. Don't even come close to it. Because it does nothing but destroy. But the beauty here is that Paul doesn't just say, stop it. He says that the way of redemption will actually lead to deep redemption in a number of different areas. And I think there are three that we get from this text. That what Paul will tell us is that what God does when he works to bring redemption into our lives is that he redeems our imaginations, he redeems our desires, and he redeems our relationships. He redeems our imaginations, our desires, and our relationships. Let's take them in turn. He gives us redeemed imaginations. In other words, he counters the imagination of how, we've create, how we begin to think of our bodies in relationship to one another and even in relationships to ourselves. He gives us a new way of seeing what he has created and the goodness thereof. John Paul II does, I love the way, it's, it's so weird in some, some sense, but in his book, of A Theology of Body, he talks about all humans as having spousal bodies, spousal bodies. And you're like, okay, so he's just going to talk about marriage. Well, no, if you don't know it, all the popes don't have wives. So he's not simply talking about that. He's saying that all bodies are spousal bodies. And what he says is this, and it's beautiful. He says that in marriage, we put on display deeper spiritual realities of our union with Christ. And marriages should point to that, but so should singleness. And so he elevates both marriage and singleness by reminding us that our bodies are built to be united to another. But for those of us married in the room, he's not saying the ultimate connection is between you and your spouse. He's saying that's merely a reflection of a union to come. And for those of, a, those of us in the room that are single, he's not saying, hey, just hold on, it'll get better eventually. He's saying, no, 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 you actually get to represent to the world what it means to move towards that unity right now in an undiluted way. He elevates, God, I think, elevates, when he gives us a redeemed view of the body, he actually redeems our view of ourselves as meant for another. Sex, marriage, singleness, all tied to this redeemed imagination of the body and what he has made us for. Redeemed desires. He tells us that you're, we're not beings that are just chasing urges. Life is so much more than that. We've seen what happens when people get hooked on addictions to pleasure and to things. They become a shadow of themselves as they see themselves as only urges to be fulfilled, not as, not as complete, holistic humans, embodied souls and ensouled bodies. That our desires are not just for, uh, for, for meeting sexual and physical urges, but desires for the good gifts that God gives us. That our desires turn not towards simply meeting uh, physical, uh, physical urges, but actually turn outward to long and desire for the good gifts that God gives. Gifts of life, of identity, of body, of covenant. 
that he redeems our imaginations and he redeems our desires. And lastly, he redeems our relationships. We no longer relate to one another as mere instruments. We live in a world in which the idea of non-sexual relationships seems to be scoffed at so often. And yet, what beauty is found in the community and the covenant of, uh, of God in his church when we see one another, not as sexual beings, but as brothers and sisters loved by our Father that we actually love and serve as well. when we redeem our view of what covenantal faithfulness in marriage ought to look like. And that's what we're going to look at next week. That we redeem our relationships as we flee sexual immorality and pursue holiness together. I think it's fascinating that Paul ends or centers this idea of redemption on resurrection. He'll continue at the end of the book in 1 Corinthians 15 to tell us that the gospel fundamentally is understood as, as reckon, recognizing the resurrection of Jesus will lead to our bodily resurrection. That actually our hope is not in escaping this body. Listen to me very, very carefully. God didn't create our body as dispensable carriers to, to walk our soul from here to heaven. He's actually going to recreate our bodies and give us new bodies. One's not corrupted by sin. One's not corrupted by death. But he does not say, oh, good, you're dead. You don't need your body anymore. The promise of resurrection, the promise of Christian resurrection actually should elevate our view of the bodies as being a central aspect of who we are, not diminish it. But our hope also is the fact that that resurrection work is not our job. That's God's gift to us. So I don't know where the Spirit is speaking to you this morning. But wherever that is, let me say this very clearly. Do not ignore that prompting from the Spirit. He's calling us away from our our, our culture's slogans in pulling us to a redeemed view of our redeemed bodies, a gift from our holy God. Would you pray with me?